This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 9th of October 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half hour, Charles Hecker joins me to chat through the day's front pages, hopefully with a cinnamon bun or two. Also ahead... Value. It seems such a solid, dependable word. What we, what things stand for, what monetary or personal significance we attach to something. But... It's a strange thing to grapple with some days. Our highly valued editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. We'll also get our regular rundown of what we learned this week with Andrew Muller. And we continue to our top 100 moments on Monocle 24 as we count down to our 10th anniversary. We haven't been able to offer equal opportunities to everyone. So it's a little uncomfortable, the whole uh, situation for the civilising process globally. That's all ahead on Monocle on Saturday, here on Monocle 24. Chinese President Xi Jinping vowed today to realise peaceful reunification with Taiwan, though did not directly mention the use of force, after a week of tensions with the Chinese-claimed island that sparked international concern. Taiwan responded shortly after by calling on Beijing to abandon its coercion, reiterating that only Taiwan's people could decide their future. A suicide bomber attacked a mosque in Afghanistan's northeastern Kunduz province yesterday, killing scores of worshippers in the country's third attack this week on a religious institution. Islamic State claimed responsibility for the attack that state-run Bakhtar news agency said had killed 46 people and wounded 143. Late on Friday, a U.S. appeals court temporarily reinstated Texas restrictive abortion law, which bars the procedure as early as six weeks into pregnancy and outsources enforcement of the ban to ordinary citizens. And a group of 136 countries has agreed to set a minimum global tax rate of 15% for big companies and sought to make it harder for them to avoid taxation in a landmark deal that US President Joe Biden said levelled the playing field. I'm Georgina Godwin and that's your Monocle 24 News. Now, Charles Hecker is in the studio with me. He is the senior partner at Control Risk, as we know, a regular guest here on Monocle 24. Good morning to you, Charles. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, now, that uh, headline about tax, it's actually a really massive breakthrough, isn't it? And the FT goes big on the story. That's right. It's a huge story right at the top of the front page of the FT Weekend Edition. Um, it's a two-column, three-deck head in bold type that says, World Signs Up to Biggest Tax Deal in Century. And as you noted at the very top of the broadcast. This is a major global deal. It's the first biggest tax reform of this scope in more than 100 years. It involves 136 countries. And what they've agreed to do is charge companies around the world a minimum of 15% on their profits, on their revenues. And what this is meant to do is it's meant to stop companies shopping around the world to legally base themselves in countries where the tax rate is low. So, for example, the 15 percent floor is still lower than the U.S. corporate tax rate, which is 21 percent. In the U.K., it's 19 percent. But if you look at Ireland, 
it was 12.5%. And that's why everyone was investing in Ireland in droves and was part of what created the Irish economic miracle. But Ireland's going to have to raise its taxes now. Mm. So what about places like, um, you know, the, the traditional tax havens like the Bahamas or wherever? That's right. So not all of the countries have signed up to this. And there are still a few of these sort of offshore jurisdictions that have to be rounded up. Um, What a lot of those places do, those are also jurisdictions where individuals park money because they have lower tax rates um, than than jurisdictions where their personal taxes will be much higher. For example, an individual in the United States, his or her income is taxed at 37%. So naturally, you're going to want to try to find a place, an offshore tax haven where you can register as an individual and pay less tax. But the idea is that the net is gradually tightening around all of these jurisdictions where people are essentially aggressively minimizing, let's say, Mm -hmm. the amount of tax that they pay to the detriment of, you know, countries and their ability to fund public services. Yeah. But I mean, overall, this is a very good thing, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. What it does is, and and, and as Biden pointed out, um, it creates a level playing field um, and prevents countries, I have to be careful not to confuse the word companies and countries here all the time, but it prevents countries from competing with each other and racing towards the bottom in their tax rates specifically to attract business. There's an interesting kicker in all of this, and that is that Biden has asked for a promise not to add any new taxes to tech companies for the next two years in order to speed the passage of this new law in the United States. The trick is that all of these 136 countries that have agreed to do this, they've got to ratify it domestically. And Biden is throwing a little bit of a sweetener to the Googles and the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Netflixes of the world to say we won't do any new taxes on you for the next two years. Hmm. Charles, I'm going to let you uh, continue flicking through the papers uh, while we hear what we learned this week with Andrew Muller. Yeah, we definitely got the front door, good buddy. Mercy sakes alive, looks like we've got us a convoy. We learned this week that spending years embroiled in what has essentially been a protracted and rancorous row about how little your country likes foreigners does not, in fact, encourage foreigners to lend a hand when you need them to. And I think you know which clip we need here. No. Really? Oh, what? that blows my mind. No way. Blow me down. Coming over here, providing the chorus on our whimsical news monologues and so on. The UK has been learning in recent weeks of the practical upshot of a post-Brexit lack of people available to drive big trucks, i.e. a lack of certain commodities on supermarket shelves and in petrol pumps. But we learned that our Prime Minister had a plan. Well, quite. We learned that temporary visas were to be offered to 5,000 lucky foreign haulage drivers, well short of the 100,000 that haulage industry organisations claim the UK needs, but better than nothing. Except, we learned, not much better. The total number of applications received for visas to drive fuel tankers is, as of this broadcast, 27.
Happy as ever to help, mind you, we learned some while ago of the identity of the hero who genuinely can help Britain in this its hour of need. His name is Mick Humphreys, and we learned of his works several summers back while watching local television in the Australian settlement of Wagga Wagga, on which was broadcast the greatest advertising jingle of all time. Mick Humphreys can teach you to drive a big truck, big so we've learned that really the UK only needs to issue one visa just as soon as Australia lets its citizens leave the country again. We have also learned that, once heard, you will find yourself involuntarily humming that tune for the rest of your goddamn life, but a hearty sing-along will pass the time while you're queuing for petrol. There is also a dance routine of sorts. Look it up. Anyway. We learned of a couple of important developments pertaining to the final frontier, and we know that between that reference and the background music we have conflated Star Wars and Star Trek. Don't write in, we don't care. We learned that Russia, which as the USSR put the first object, dog, man and woman in space, intends to make the first film in space, dispatching director Klim Shipenko and actor Yulia Parasild to the International Space Station to commence shooting a dreadful sounding thriller called The Challenge. Actually, maybe this sounds better in Russian, for which, over to our Russia desk chief, Paige Reynolds. No, это вызов. Actually, no, not really. While this whimsical news monologue is wholeheartedly and full-throatedly in favour of launching actors into orbit, if less so about bringing them back, we'll freely admit to having set this story up in the hope of nailing some sort of punchline about film stars, but in what might at least work as an eerie foreshadowing of this movie they're making, it doesn't seem to have been worth the effort. Appreciate the thought. There it is, for we learned that it is not only the Russians whose forays heavenward are becoming very arguably undignified. We learned that the recently instituted sixth branch of the US military, Space Force, is having difficulties with trousers. Space Force, you'll recall, is a legacy of former US President Donald Trump and has already drawn much mockery for uniforms which look to have been purchased en masse from an online bootlegger of Battlestar Galactica costumes. And yes, we know we've mixed up the music and the series again. We still don't care. A special criticism was made of the Space Force uniform trousers, which were baggy, bunched and made the wearer look regrettably like they'd put them on backwards. But we learned that alterations are imminent, and we learned this from the Twitter account of Space Force in a bulletin which will now be narrated by Monocle24's Space Force desk chief, Carlotta Ribello. We heard your feedback. New pants, new fit, yes, coming soon. So we learned that, and we think this will land, while you can't hear anyone scream in space, you can hear feedback. And yes, we know, we've just shoehorned an Aliens reference in there as well. We still don't care. I bet you didn't let me be. 
And back here on Earth, we learned of the restoration of an ursine crown. Fat Bear Week, the self-explanatory contest held annually in Alaska's Katmai National Park, was decided in favour of a brown bear called 480 Otis. Otis, believed to tip the scales at north of 450 kilograms, had won three times previously, but not since 2017. Big pause. <laughs> For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. I just want to be Many thanks to Andrew Muller there. And this is Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. And I'm with Charles Hecker in the studio. Charles, can farming be sexy? We're about to find out. We're going to go bucolic, Georgina. And, and how could you not when you see above the fold on the front page of the international edition of the New York Times for today, you see a picture of farmland and a big headline that says, Making Agriculture Sexy. And this is a story about how they're trying to do just that in France. Basically, here are the sobering statistics of agriculture in France, which, by the way, produces 20% of all of the agricultural output in the entire European Union. So France is a major agricultural problem, uh, power. <laughs> Sorry, Fred, I, I, Was that for you? Well, it might be because we're going to get to the fact that France gets $10 billion in subsidies for its agricultural sector. And a lot of people do see that as a very big problem because it distorts the agricultural market. We'll park that for a second. <laughs> but 50% of French farmers are over 50 years old and they're getting ready to retire and there's nobody to replace them because younger people don't feel that agriculture is sexy. So enter French billionaire entrepreneur Xavier Niel who has created an institute, an, a sort of a, an experimental school called Hectare. It looks like hectare but without the E on the end and he is teaching young people how to program crop harvesting robots. He is helping incubate vineyards that are driven by big data, which we're told is very sexy. Um, and the cows in the pastures that are associated with this venture are wearing devices that are kind of like Fitbits. And I guess we're meant to think that those are sexy too. Extraordinary. I mean, the article is really quite worrying, though, about the state of French agriculture. It points to really high um, rates of suicide amongst farmers. Yes. So the French agricultural industry is, you could say, addicted to these subsidies. And without them, you wonder how economically healthy they might be. And, and what, the time, what the Times tells us is that there are 70,000 agricultural jobs in France that are empty. Um, and that there are potentially up to 160,000 farms that will be up for sale as all of these farmers retire. And you're right. So the Times tells us that actually making money and turning a profit in French agriculture is extremely difficult. And it does lead to this sort of rural despair that has driven a lot of French farmers, very sadly, to suicide. And, you know, we're in the middle of a very serious conversation about the future of agriculture here in the UK. Um, the article also talks about how the US has completely changed its agricultural business model. So there's transformation coming, whether it's sexy or not. Absolutely. Charles, thank you. And we'll come back to you after we've heard from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. Here he is with his regular Saturday column. Some years ago, 
I developed an unusual and thankfully passing habit. I started looking forward to Antiques Roadshow. The programme may wrap itself in more layers of gentility than a Victorian lady in flouncy petticoats, think plummy presenters, with hair as lacquered as a shiny dining table, a celebrated country pile as the backdrop, and that theme tune. But what really makes it so watchable are things much more delicious than that. Firstly, there are the unsuspecting folk who don't seem to have realised that their ancestors were probably common thieves. They arrive with a pair of elaborate silver candle holders and some half-baked story that their great-grandmother was so loved by the family that she worked for that they told her to take whatever she fancied when she retired. Of course they did, my dear. And then there used to be all sorts of colonial and military booty that I suspect would not be allowed on air these days. Roof tiles nicked from the Forbidden Palace and Maharaja's knickers. But the bit I used to savour most, I admit rather darkly, was watching how the show cruelly let the air out of people's dreams of untold wealth right in front of your eyes. Sometimes the presenter would explain that said object seemed to be a fake, had been glued back together, or was just rather common, making its owner feel both poorer and publicly belittled. Even if they did enthuse about, say, an ancient grandfather clock, they would then add, at auction, this might make a hundred pounds. The poor sap on camera now realised that they'd basically wasted their life polishing this ugly brute. Clock, not presenter. But now they were stuck in front of the TV cameras and needed to somehow pretend that they'd never been in it for the money. So, again and again, they would say the same phrase through gritted teeth. Oh, really? As much as that? And then the presenter would get to use the equally reliable line... The most important thing is that you get pleasure from it. Value. It seems such a solid, dependable word. What we, what things stand for, what monetary or personal significance we attach to something. But it's a strange thing to grapple with some days. This week we gave something to someone we know whose life is not easy and also not organised in a way that probably you and me would feel comfortable with. There are no drugs or drink involved, but some issues for sure. The gift was something with modest monetary value, but with, we had understood, the potential of sentimental meaning. On a phone call, however, 24 hours later, they told us that they had gone to the local pawn shop and sold it for a sum that was woefully low. Try untangling the value that we had tried placing on a gift, the fleeting value it retained for someone whose life is not plain sailing, the value placed on it by a pawn shop. What was it actually worth? I just don't know. But I found the experience infuriating and unreasonably so because really, once gone from our hands, it was none of our business. You'll also remember that earlier this year I banged on about the death of my partner's aunt and all that entailed. Selling a house after the death of someone in the UK can be long-winded. First, you have to get probate, my partner's job as the executor of the will to disperse the estate. Then you exchange on the sale with your buyer. This finally happened on Monday. And this is the moment when nobody can really back out. And then you complete. That date is set for the 25th of October and keys will be handed over. While most possessions have already been dispersed from the house, it's now time to get rid of the furniture. And this week has been a painful revenge reenactment of the Antiques Roadshow. 
In our post-COVID world, you send pictures of potentially valuable items to auction houses, and a young man with a posh name, Archie James, sends back their valuation verdicts. A Georgian cabinet is of little commercial value. Sets of glassware will be accepted, but please remove all sherry glasses as there is no market for these. Even many of the things that are to be accepted have suggested reserves so low that hiring a van to haul them to the auction house comes with a risk of any potential profit evaporating. How can a table valued by various owners over centuries have less worth than, say, an MDF one from IKEA? But we cannot keep these things. We have no space. So we have to hope that someone else will buy them and cherish them, although I'm not sure the outcome in sense of money will be any better than going to the local pawn shop. And perhaps in the end, that's all that our friend did too. Simply thought, I hope this gift ends up somewhere where it can be cherished. It cannot stay here, because for now, money is what I need. And perhaps also when the pawn shop owner spoke his derisory offer, the response uttered with relief by my friend was, really, as much as that? Thank you very much to our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. Uh, Charles, I've got a house stuffed full of all that sherry glasses and Georgian <laughs> silver and things that really just doesn't... There is no market for it. He's absolutely right. No, it's the emotional value that we treasure more than anything else, and, and, and it makes you think that perhaps this is worth something to somebody else, but it's what it's worth to us. No, absolutely. I love the fact that I'm using teaspoons that my great-great-grandmother had. You yeah, know. exactly right. It tastes a little bit better, I bet. Uh, absolutely. Let's go from 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 the ancient to the thoroughly modern. This is the <laughs> latest thing to absolutely become a worldwide craze, and I don't understand it. I haven't watched it. I'm not even sure what it is. Squid Game. We're going to go there, Georgina. <laughs> uh, and 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 if you're inclined towards binge watching, this is what's going to happen. I think. So there's a headline in the Washington Post today that that bears quite a bit of unpacking, to be honest with you. But here we go. It says, why does Squid Game resonate so well in the U.S.? It may be its portrayal of economic despair. <laughs> and so here's what we have to do briefly is unpack, first of all, Squid Game. Squid Game is a Korean television show that Netflix, which carries the show globally, says is on the verge of becoming its most popular offering ever, which means that it's a bigger hit or going to be a bigger hit than Bridgerton, which of course was, you know, this sort of world killing period um, drama. Squid Games is described as an ultra violent mega hit. And what it is, is it's a series of, it depicts a series of games, like kids games, like red light, green light, when you have to, someone says red light and you have to freeze. Uh -huh. And someone says green light and you can run. Um, it's people playing these kids games, but if you lose, you get killed. Oh my God. <laughs> and in the pilot episode, there are 400 contestants in one of these games, and more than 200 of them wind up dead. Um, and, and here's the thing about, and so now we move on to, this is the, the, the sort of mass murder aspect of it all. Now we move on to the economic despair element. Um, gosh, this is a bit heavy on a Saturday morning, <laughs> isn't it really? Bring on the cinnamon buns. Um, anyway, to get to the point here, the participants in these games, which who are risking their lives, are all financially desperate because 
because if you win the game, there's a massive financial prize. And so the kind of people, the Washington Post tells us, the kind of people who are signing up to play in these games are gambling addicts, fraudsters, the impoverished elderly, North Korean refugees, undocumented immigrants. And now all of a sudden you wind up seeing that this resonates quite well in the United States, which makes you think, God, it must be pretty dark in the US right now. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, um, I asked somebody else what this was all about. And they said, oh, it's a reality show. Exactly as you say, it's a reality show and you play these games and, you you know, everybody there needs, needs the money. But, but if you lose, you die. And they didn't make it clear to me that it was fiction. <laughs> and I was like, what? You die? And they were like puzzled at why I was so... <laughs> I was really thinking, this is a step two. <laughs> well, radio, radio has the power to convince, Georgina. Um, and what was it? War of the Worlds that... Um, yeah. Decades and decades ago that people thought was real. Yes, of course, of course. I mean, <laughs> we haven't got to that point yet, though, which is, which, which is a good thing. Uh, listen, very, very exciting because it's our birthday. Monocle 24's birthday. Monocle 24's 10th birthday. Congratulations and happy birthday. That's very exciting. Ten years young. Exactly. And it's very, very exciting. We've been running all these kind of highlights and we're going to play another one in a moment. But we are also going to have a media conference to to commemorate that uh, on the 14th. I think that's Thursday. That's this coming week. Yes, it's sooner than you think. (laughs) And uh, packed full of really, really great, interesting stuff. It's all all the details are on our website. And um, you should uh, come along because it's going to be so much fun. Anyway, Charles, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Uh, And finally, it's time for another Monocle 24 highlight from our archives. We've been replaying clips from past programmes all week. And now we have an interview with the Brazilian legend Gilberto Gil speaking to our very own Brazilian. Brazilian legend, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It is not a story about once upon a time. We don't like the story about once upon a time. In a sense, I'm here looking for the traces of the similarity between us. They wanted to have a conversational film about the questions raised by colonial times, by slavery, by exploitation, social unrest and social instability, and they chose the aborigines in Australia or the communities that were part of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, and then some Indian tribes in, in the Amazon. And they asked me to propose the conversational elements for the different people in the film and to have the music, to bring my music and to ask some colleagues, musicians, you know, from Australia and South Africa and Brazil to do the thing. We did. We had a two-month filming season. I went to Australia, went to South Africa, went to the Amazon and some filming in Bahia also in my hometown during Carnival and then they brought the whole material to Switzerland and they processed the material and they got the finally they got a film during my life of growing up with Omo knowing the West and there was a very big hole and there was a feeling empty and feeling lost when you're an indigenous person from your country and you're led to a belief that you are no one is a terrible indictment of colonization. 
And after being to all of those countries in the Southern Hemisphere with quite similar pasts, you know, because they're all colonized, did you feel a lot of similarities between Brazil, Australia, South Africa? Sure, sure, sure. The, the British Empire in, in Australia and New Zealand, the Portuguese Empire in, in, in Brazil, the royal families, the royal houses, European houses that sponsored them I in those processes and the discovering and the bringing of technology to exploitation of the resources in those countries. The processes were very similar because they had the possibility of uh, a great accumulation of wealth, but they had also injustice and um, social imbalance and, and social inequality and, and all those things. I mean, very similar for the three areas. And at the same time, the film is very positive when talking about a racial diversity and everything. And are you an optimistic, Schubert? I am both. I am optimistic from a side and pessimistic from the other side because from the optimistic side, I always believe that we are trying as a whole humanity group. We are trying to get better, to develop them from the pessimistic side. I'm not sure that we'll have time to get to a balanced situation that will, would enable us to go for a future with good prospects. So I'm at the same time optimistic and, and pessimistic, but I still believe that we can make it. Yeah. Everybody's related, Every, everybody's family. You are because I am. I am because you are. And talking about problems in society, uh, you know, Brazil actually has recently been, there's been a lot of protests. Do you see that as something positive, perhaps? If not necessarily positive, it's at least neutral. And it's not just happening in Brazil, it's happening everywhere, in Spain, in Turkey, in Arab countries, in Egypt, in the States with the Occupy movement, in Spain, everywhere. I mean, I used to say that there is a, a tiring, there is a kind of little exhaustion, you know, to the whole civilizing thing. I mean, we've been accelerating too much in the late at least 150 years, and we haven't been able to offer equal opportunities to everyone. So it's a little uncomfortable, the whole uh, situation for the civilizing process globally. And finally, Gilberto, I just want to ask this final question. We're here in England, and I know you came to London 69 after being exiled. How do you feel when you come back to England? What it's, are your ex it's good, memories? It's a good thing, like, like, like going these places and coming here for the festival, I was, great memories came up, you know, like I was remembering the first time I went for the first Glastonbury Festival, for the first and the second edition of, of the Isle of Wight Festival, to the Bath Festival. I mean, those were events and happenings that were giving the pace for what came later, you know. So we were sort of starting in England, you know, a whole thing that established the grounds for our contemporary cultural situation. So for me, it's an, an interesting opportunity to have those memories and to go back to those, you know, ancient times and see the families, like the grandmas and grandpas, you know, here with the sons and the grandsons and the hippie 
society, you know, uh, still living and perpetuating and, you know, and going ahead. It's a nice thing. Now, Meludo is our call to say these things and write subjects that are bringing enlightenment to the people, making them aware where we come from, where we are now, so as to make love to the future. One of Monocle 24's top 100 moments there. And we'll continue to count down our anniversary throughout the week. But why don't you join us and our panellists on Thursday the 14th of October for the Monocle Media Summit in London. We'll be discussing the future of the industry, reflecting on the past 12 months, and we'll even bring you one of our shows live in front of the audience. Oh, and there's drinks too, of course, because it wouldn't be a celebration without them. Uh, I'll be there. I'm longing to meet listeners and uh, get some feedback and, and and uh, talk about what it is that you'd like to hear going forward. Uh, that's all, though, for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, and our producer, Carlotta Rabello. I'm Georgina Godwin. Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>